Hello and welcome to another episode of the Hague Diplomacy Podcast. My name is Elon Medhavji, and I'll be your host. If you've ever thought to yourself that countries sometimes seem to behave a little bit like people do, then today is for you because we're going to understand that a little bit better. One thing that we as human beings certainly have in common with countries operating on the international stage is that we, in some form or another, seek status. Now, I don't necessarily mean that in the egotistical, selfish, childlike kind of way, although that's definitely relevant at some points. I mean status as in being accepted as an equal, seen as a legitimate body and and basically that you deserve to be at the table, which is a metaphor you're going to hear a few times today. So just as you maybe have felt on your first day at a new school or new job, or when you move to a new town, countries also seek this acceptance and respect and status as they grow and reach new echelons. But when rising powers like China and India do this, what does that mean for the already great powers of this world and the other countries that populate its club? Well, traditional thinking would have us believe that new powers will do everything they can to disrupt the current establishment in order to put their own stamp on international affairs, and that eventually this will likely lead to conflict. But does this mean that the international order created by the United States that includes the United Nations and universal human rights, does that mean that they become at risk of being destroyed or replaced if rising powers with different values have more say? Our guest today, Dr. Rohan Mukherjee, approaches these questions looking through the lens of status, rather than the old school approach of who has more guns and money. And as the recipient of the Hague Journal of Diplomacy Book Award for his book, Ascending Order, Rising Powers and the Politics of Status in International Institutions, and also as an assistant professor within the Department of International Relations at London School of Economics, there's really no one better place to explain to us why understanding this behavior and threats from rising powers in this way can actually show us how great powers and aspiring great powers can cooperate in a way that can move the whole world forward rather than divide it. Institutional status theory basically talks about um, the way in which rising power, so countries whose you know, capabilities in terms of economics and military power are increasing, uh, how they seek to gain more recognition and status in uh, the international institutions that comprise the international order, right? So when we think of international order, we're typically talking about um, the various institutions, rules, arrangements, and all of these things through which states kind of govern conflict and cooperation between themselves. So the UN Security Council, uh, the IMF, the World Bank, you know, those kinds of institutions. Um, and so the argument is essentially that, you know, as new powers enter the global arena and start to gain importance, you can think about China or India today, but also the US and Japan in the past, um, there have been, you know, various rising powers um, they seek some form of recognition or status that puts them at a sort of symbolic level as equals of the established great powers. And one of the ways they can do that is um, to do it through the established institutions uh, of the international order, to seek equal treatment in those institutions at the hands of those rules, uh, which gives them a sense of symbolic equality uh, with great powers. 
I found it when I was reading uh, your book and some of the articles you wrote, I, I found it in a way kind of refreshing, um, you know, in a in a field and also maybe kind of generally in the world now where we are kind of, we're often asking, you know, why do they fight? Uh, sometimes I heard you asking, actually, why do they cooperate? I found a kind of an interesting uh, look on the other side of that coin. So keeping that in mind, you know, when it comes to say status seeking, what does status seeking actually look like? I know there are, you know, you talk of longer term processes, processes over decades. Um, so what does that look like? But also maybe what does it look like on the shorter term, the day to day, month to month? Yeah, so um, the cooperation question is an interesting one, because a lot of the research on rising powers um, and what is known as power transition, broadly speaking, um, is really about um, the conditions under which rising countries will sort of come into conflict with with established powers. And this is largely framed in terms of military conflict. But in fact, if you broaden the time horizon, as you said, right, over decades, you start to see that actually a country's rise is a very long process. And it, you know, as they rise, the, the first thing they encounter is not necessarily the possibility of conflict, but in fact, the world that is created by the great powers, this world of international institutions, rules and norms. Um, and they have to figure out how to navigate that world. And also that uh, their the feedback that they get from that, that uh, set of institutions shows them their place in the international order, where they fit into this sort of hierarchy of, of prestige or status, whatever we want to call that. And so they're, they're kind of inferring their position and how they stand in international society uh, from these institutions. And so there's a long-term process by which sort of they look to the rules and the procedures and how these institutions function in terms of whether they treat them as equals or not of the great powers. But on a day-to-day -day basis as well, I think there are short-term things in terms of how countries treat each other in negotiations. Are they, uh, There are questions of mutual respect. Uh, there are questions of equal terms, uh, whether countries are giving each other equal terms. Even you know, you know, at a micro level in, in international conferences, which countries diplomats get to sit at which portion of the table and whether that actually, you know, what that says about where they stand in the international order in some sense. Uh, and then there's a sort of medium-term stuff, which is more about who gets to lead these institutions? Whose nationals get appointed as the 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 you know senior executive positions in uh, in the United Nations or in the Bretton Woods institutions and so on? And so it's a mix of these sort of longer term trends, uh, short term sort of everyday diplomacy, but also medium term things in terms of uh, who leads institutions. What Rohan is really trying to stress here is that the study of rising great powers should start long before anyone can be threatened by them. In other words, if you find yourself reading op-eds and articles about how the next decade is, quote-unquote, theirs, it's already too late, like, like decades too late. And to be clear, you're going to hear us talking about China and India a lot, but today, they're like late-stage rising powers. They're actually knocking on the door of being a great power. And what Rohan's work does is track that trajectory from its infancy when countries are becoming leaders in their neighborhood and eventually a regional power that's starting to spread its message across the world and really take advantage of globalized trade and communication. That's already when status is playing a key role. Because a country like that, whether we like it or not, simply has to play the game within the boundaries set by the Western liberal world order, or whatever you want to call it. And that's very much policed by the United States and its allies and its values. And seeking status is a great way to find success within that system until people start getting a little scared 
that these countries are going to overthrow the existing system to create their own rules to their own game. Yeah, I mean, there's certainly risks. I think the first thing to say, though, is I think whether a power is adversarial or not is itself a function of the degree of recognition it receives in the order, right? So this is where I think this idea of like, complexifying the idea of just conflict is important, right? So you often see like, rising powers being quite cooperative when they are given a seat at the table, when they are treated as equals. Uh, they're willing to cooperate because they feel like they, they have a stake in the ownership over that international institution or over the international order writ large. So it's not a given that powers will necessarily be antagonistic or, or, or hostile in some sense to the order. And we see that a little bit now with you know China as well, which is there is no one way in which China accepts or rejects the international order. It really depends on the different parts of the order and how how they treat China with regard to giving its status with you know, symbolic equality with the United States, right? And so there are some parts where the like the UN Security Council and so on that China actually highly values and does cooperate with. So in that sense, uh, there is this sort of push towards uh, cooperating in areas where you get that recognition. Having said that. There's obviously a clear normative difference, like a moral difference, or a, let's call it a political difference between the way China organizes its society and politics and the way the United States does, right? Or, you know, and this can be applied to other eras as well. Authoritarian rising powers will not necessarily fit into a, a international order run by democratic great powers, right? And so there, if you're the democratic great power, your real concern then is if you let these countries into the club, are they going to go about sort of destroying global governance or subverting it in ways that pursues authoritarian ends um, in the international system, right? And does that make the international system overall more unsafe for you and your democratic allies, right? That's the basic question in some sense. And it, I would say that, yes, there's some risk of that, but at the same time, the order itself provides great benefits to countries like China um, and, and even India, for that matter, although India is you know, demo a democracy much more so than China. Um, China gets a lot of benefits from the international order that are economic or security-based or even status-based, right? So there's no real reason for China to necessarily want to destroy the institutions that exist. I think what China wants to do is essentially you know, have a say in running the show. And in fact, do a lot more of running the show. And so then the question is, when, if you do a thought experiment and say, what would the world look like if China was the one, you know, with occupying most of the leadership positions in the international institutions or calling the shots? It, it would obviously be different, but would it be so different that it would be unrecognizable? I'm not so sure. I think it would. There is China does have an interest in maintaining a lot of the existing um, arrangements for cooperation. So a great example is, you know, when Donald Trump became president and decided to kind of, um, go at, uh, you know, globalization as sort of a thing that the U.S. was losing from and China was gaining from, it, this was exposed, this fact was exposed, that China has actually benefited a great deal from liberalization of global trade and finance and all of this stuff over the last three decades. And so then Xi Jinping's position on globalization was quite positive, that he kept reasserting the fact that this is a force for good, it's important for all these various countries, and we should preserve the arrangements that we have, right? So in some sense, there is this impulse to also preserve the, the good stuff that comes out of the order for these, country, for these rising powers, uh, while changing some of the more difficult things for them. And the, the difficulties come within the domain of democracy and human rights. So yes, I think those would be the areas of the order that would suffer if China became a true equal of the United States. But there are many other areas of the order that would actually still remain quite functional uh, and successful. If I understand you correctly, like in my mind, then uh, there becomes sort of a balancing act, maybe between giving them a seat at the table to the point that we reap these benefits you're talking about, 
Um, and then naturally the way that human beings and countries are in that sort of, you know, the, the risk averse and realists among us will say, okay, eventually you come to this danger point. But then what I hear you saying is actually maybe past that point, we swing back to, you know what, actually inclusion actually strengthens the current order. If you can get past that uncomfortable point of, oh, someone's coming in and they believe different things and they do things differently. Yes, I think um, inclusion shouldn't be a one-way street. I think that's the main thing here, right? From a policy perspective, you don't just give up the farm to accommodate new powers. You ask something of them in return, you strike a bargain, right? And I think that's really the uh, kind of what I, what I've tried to argue in other places as well, which is that you don't simply admit China into the club. You ask them to also meet some conditions, and one of those conditions may be to actually maintain a minimum standard of human rights, even though it's not you know perhaps their ideal, or rather you know, the American ideal of spreading freedom and democracy around the world. But it is to respect you know the goals of the broader international order with regard to democracy and human rights. So in some sense, not subvert them, and so you strike that bargain where you know you you provide china with the status that it's seeking in different in the areas where it doesn't have it in exchange for more cooperation from china in the areas where it's already quite secure right and so uh, for example can you can china sort of unfreeze its veto in the un security council to actually do things with regard to russia right can it put more pressure on russia to 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 ease, to 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 pull out of ukraine or to find a settlement on ukraine uh, can it you know put more pressure on north korea for its nuclear program and there was a time when china was quite involved in the six party talks as well which broke down for other reasons. So I think there, there are bargains to be struck here where if you read, it opens up, and, and this is kind of going back to your earlier question, which is what does a status lens show us that other lenses don't, right? And I think what it shows us is there's a whole range of things that open up when you think about status, where you can bargain over these things and say, look, we'll give you a seat at the table, but we want some substantive commitments from you to not destroy the order, to not like, uh, you know, to not uh, uh, follow your interests so single-mindedly that you just undermine the institutions that exist. The reason we keep talking about China is because it's a great example of the diversity of status that a single rising power can experience throughout the international order. See, on the one hand, China is a permanent member of the UN Security Council, and at the very least procedurally, that makes it equal to the US, Russia, UK, and France with that veto privilege. And Rohan also writes about them being a major player at the World Trade Organization and G20 with their economic might. But then at the same time, parallel to that, they still struggle for status and privilege within the International Monetary Fund and the World Bank, where they've not quite been able to dominate those strategic leadership positions or reform voting rights in the way they want to. And this doesn't even begin to dive into how China views human rights institutions like the UN Human Rights Council, which the US and its allies often use as a forum to highlight China's human rights violations, thus damaging their credibility. And it's around this issue where I found a very interesting benefit of status, hypocrisy. To then, you know, perhaps be used on issues like human rights, and um, I just want to—I just want to pull one quote out of uh, the Foreign Affairs article uh, you wrote earlier this year. You said China's quest is ultimately for the right to be as hypocritical as the United States in the international order. Um, I think that's a great quote, and uh, 
what what exactly by throwing hypocrisy into the mix? I know that's a a big word. It means a lot of things to a lot of people. What exactly are you touching on there? Yeah, so this is uh, the other side of the coin, as it were, which is how do the great powers actually run the international order, um, and particularly from the perspective of those who are not in the club. And it's fairly evident that international order in a world where we don't have world government, right, what political scientists would call anarchy, uh, in that situation of anarchy, um, you basically um, end up with a, a sort of compromise between sovereign equality and hierarchy, right? So in, in in some settings, you have a UN General Assembly kind of institutions where it's one country, one vote. But then we also recognize the fact that some powers are privileged and have this veto power in the UN Security Council and are part of the P5, who are also, by the way, the permanent, the, the, the official nuclear weapon states recognized by the NPT and so on, right? So they do occupy this privileged position. And within the P5, there is a further hierarchy, I would argue, which is a P3, US, Japan, uh, I'm so sorry, uh, US, uh, the P3, US, France, and Britain, um, who kind of have even more informal privileges within the Great Power Club, as it were. If you look at the informal workings of the UN Security Council and so on, they do control a lot of that, that, that part of it, that side of it. Um, and 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 Russian and Chinese sort of leaders have expressed repeatedly a feeling of exclusion even from that inner circle of the of the Great Power Club, right? So so it's they point out and other other countries India Brazil Turkey and other countries that aspire to sort of regional and global roles will also point out the fact that the US and its close western allies uh say one thing about the international order as, as being a rules based liberal open and fair order but actually act in ways that are deeply hypocritical their actions don't match their words right and so uh, great examples of all of this are they abound when you look at whether the US has actually signed or ratified many of the things that it would like other countries to sign and ratify so think about the 1992 Kyoto protocol think about the Rome statute that is the basis of the international criminal court think about you know the the Trump presidency itself, which kind of saw the U.S. pulling out of the Paris Agreement and and various other things, the the Trans-Pacific Partnership and so on. Um, you you could also sort of um, think of it in terms of um, the the current uh, sort of unwillingness of the U.S. to cooperate with the appointment of judges on the WTO tribunal. Right, many of the things that. The U.S. wants others to do, it reserves the right for itself not to do on grounds of sovereignty, power, and so on. So that's where the charge of hypocrisy comes. And that is a true privilege of being the preeminent power in the world, is that you can do that stuff and get away with it. And we're even seeing this with Russia, right? The fact that Russia has the veto in the U.N. Security Council means that no one can really officially... Uh, diplomatically sanction or call out Russia because it can veto any resolution that is sort of aimed at it in the UN Security Council on this issue. That is a privilege of being part of the Great Power Club. China has had that privilege since 1971, of course, but again, it does feel like it there's that it does not get treated as an equal even of the US within that club. Right? So 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 I think the hypocrisy charge is basically that China wishes to be able to do things with impunity in the way that the U.S. often does in the international system uh, and, and not be called out for that or, you know, not pay the sort of uh, reputational costs of that. But right now, the U.S. is the one calling out China uh, for those actions, right? It's actions that contravene international law. So the U.N. Convention on the Law of the Sea is another example, right, where China frequently contravenes it in the South China Sea because of all its disputes and its, its aggressive island building activities and so on. And when the U.S. does freedom of navigation operations in that region or calls out China's behavior, China turns around and says, well, you've not even signed the convention on the law of the sea, right? So there is this charge of why don't you follow the rules yourself before you start telling us what to do? And that's really the hypocrisy problem here. 
something kind of pops up into my mind. Maybe it's a, a bridge too far. You you let me know. But uh, it wouldn't be a, a Hague Journal of Diplomacy podcast without a mention of public diplomacy. <laughs> um, I wonder if the world we live in now where public opinion is as uh, powerful uh, a tool or weapon as it's ever been in a time where information is as readily accessible to everyone uh, in a way that's never kind of been around before. I wonder if, you know, the charge of hypocrisy is somehow influenced more and more by publics, civil society, academic institution, online communities, uh, people who now are, you know, have access to resources to actually build an opinion about this. People such as yourself wrote a book about it, right? Do you think that, you know, uh, the way that, you know, countries are now dealing in status and hypocrisy, they also have to consider this public opinion. How are we communicating this to domestic and foreign publics? Yes, I think public diplomacy has become quite important, um, especially if you think about the role that publics might play in democratic settings uh, to influence policy, right? So if you're a rising power like China or India or even a regional power like Brazil or Turkey, you have, in a sense, one of your priorities would be and probably is, uh, and we see that empirically as well, to influence public opinion in the West, right? To show that, you know, you are actually a rule follower and have cooperated in many different in many different cases. Um, and, and in fact, it is the US that kind of is a hypocrite or whatever, right? So, and a lot of that actually, frankly, also, and this is the, the other side of the coin, as it were, or the darker side of... Um, the underbelly of globalization and media uh, and, and social media, which is disinformation, right? A lot of this is also based on uh, sometimes false narratives, right? About about cooperation and who who started what and who has followed what and who has who is more to blame for the breakdown of trust and cooperation and all of this stuff. We saw this around the origins of COVID nineteen, right? And and the politicization of the WHO that that happened uh, quite substantially. Um, so yes, public diplomacy matters. I think the other thing I would say is. I wonder if we would have seen so much wolf warrior diplomacy coming out of China, um, and and frankly, you know, there's a there's a what you might call a wolf warrior light coming out of India now in the, in a very sort of prickly acerbic online presence at least of Indian diplomats and and spokespersons and public intellectuals and so on. Um, if there wasn't this large uh, transnational audience sitting on X or, you know, Facebook or whatever you have it, right? There is this, in a sense, now that the audience is online and constantly online in different time zones, there is this effort to also win them over and sometimes even, you know, rally your own audiences domestically, right? So the wolf warrior-ness is often, I think people think it's aimed at the other country is an assertive move, but it's more often, I think, aimed at your domestic audience to show the domestic audience who is always online or many of them who are always online, uh, to show them that you're standing up for your national interest, right? And 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 so these politics are now playing out at multiple levels of different audiences in across these different domains. And and public diplomacy, I mean, I think wolf warriorness does undermine public diplomacy. It doesn't really enhance your foreign reputation, but it certainly bolsters domestic support uh, for for your policy. So there can there can be things working at cross purposes as well. I mean, one of the the reasons I've like asked about that is just because. I think when it comes to maybe the more virtuous humanistic aspects of the international order, you touched on it, right? Uh, Human rights, uh, whether that's in the form of international humanitarian law or human rights law, the Human Rights Council at the United Nations, that also trickles into, you know, the International Criminal Court in a way uh, and the International Court of Justice. 
I think that maybe now, at least I find myself seeing an interesting relationship between hypocrisy, status, public diplomacy, and, you know, your theory, actually, in a way. So is there something that, you know, the people listening who, I mean, let's be honest, today more than most days, I think a lot of people are maybe feeling disenfranchised, confused. Okay, my state champions this for some occasions, not for others. My state supports countries doing this, but doesn't support other countries doing the same thing. There's a lot of uh, confusion, I think, for just like, honestly, just regular Joes and Jills, just regular people are seeing a lot of things happening and one and one is not equaling two anymore. So um, is there something that like you think we can learn from your perspective through your eyes on, on these topics to better kind of understand the you know how this land lays? Yeah, I mean, that's a... It's a tough and important question. It's 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 hard to sort of uh, distill any positive lessons from all of this. I think that um, if there's one thing people have learned, you know, by, by through the democratization of social media, is that you know states are really often very very hypocritical, and I think um, they will you know the gap between th- between between speech and action is really exposed a lot now, and I think um, it if one is thinking about one's own society, one's own state, and and you see this kind of gap between your, your state's behavior from one conflict to another, right? You support one set of actors in one conflict, and you don't support an almost similar set of actors in another context. And often that difference can play out between who is close, more closely tied to Europe than not, right? The sort of Eurocentrism of the world and of American foreign policy and Western foreign policy and all of that is on display right now, right? That's the, sort of the simplest way to put it. And if you're sitting in the West and thinking about this from from a from a sort of Western citizen standpoint, um, the best you can do really is is to sort of uh, I think try and focus on domestic politics. That is where people can have an impact, right? And I think a lot of this is driven by domestic politics. So in a sense, we have I, I guess one big lesson for me is and 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 as a, as a person who studies international relations, I tend to always think of it as outside in, right? The international effects the countries, but but really we're living in a world now where the inside out is just as important, if not more important, right? The domestic politics have changed the nature of the international order and how states behave abroad. And certain certain ways of doing politics, such as you know, populism, for example, have made it almost socially and culturally and and in all other ways, morally acceptable to people to take deeply selfish and and inconsistent stances on various issues, right? Uh, If you think about how populist leaders argue uh, for certain things, it it almost signals a collapse of the liberal ideals that led to the founding of this order, which is, you know, in a sense, treating like with like, behaving in a consistent manner, in a universally fair and open manner. Not that the US was or the West was ever consistent, right? But that that degree of inconsistency and, and, and inconsistency, and more importantly, completely embracing and, and celebrating that inconsistency and saying, actually, we should just be hyper pragmatic or hyper realpolitik and just look out for our own interests and forget the people who are suffering. You know, that's just the way the world is. We should think of ourselves, America first, right? Or or, or Netherlands first or, 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 or Brit- you know, Britain first or whatever. So that inward turn in domestic politics is something that I think one can use to make sense of this, but it's also the place where one can try to bring back some sanity if if one is motivated in that way uh, to to try and address global problems. I think when things are a little bit hectic in the world or in the country you're listening from, and maybe even at a more local level within your communities, your neighborhoods, your places of work, 
It helps to break down the chaos a little bit and try to understand the motivations behind each action and each turning point. So I hope you're walking away today with another tool to do just that. Another currency to weigh the actions of a country or actor in relation to the structure that confines them and defines them. We now know that it's not always just security strategy or economic gains and losses that motivate states. Countries are just like us. They want to be welcomed in, respected, maybe even offered a cup of tea. A massive thank you goes out to Rohan for sharing his award-winning thoughts and time with me, and to you, of course, for tuning in. Thank you.